But I also go back to this concept of transparency. And I think for, especially for siblings, they worry. They worry about some of the same things that we as parents worry about, and they worry about their responsibilities when we're not around. And so the more forthcoming we can be, the more transparent we can be about our plans, our needs, our fears, not to inundate them, but you know, at some point when everybody's an adult, to, to just make sure everybody's on the same page. Welcome to the Bite Your Tongue podcast. I'm Denise, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Ellen Broughton. We've been through many years of parenting together, and now we're ready to talk about the ins and outs of parenting adult children. Your diapering days are over. Now it's time to consider when to bite your tongue. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. We're so glad you're with us today. We've got quite an exciting episode coming up. Today, we're pleased to welcome Chris Burbank for an episode on parenting your adult children with special needs. Chris is a coach for families with disabilities and works not only with families with adult children, but with all ages. Just as background, she holds a certificate in leadership coaching from Georgetown University. And most importantly, she's a proud mother of three adult children, including one son born four months premature with severe cerebral palsy. Her own family's experience helps her truly understand the support families need. After a successful career in communications with Procter & Gamble and several leading PR agencies, she founded two municipal commissions on disability in Connecticut and one very special nonprofit called Team Wolfgang & Company. I actually was introduced to Chris through a friend I worked with in New York, Susan Smirnoff. So thanks, Susan, for bringing Chris to us. We're so lucky to have her today to discuss a topic that's sometimes difficult and quite emotional. Welcome, Chris. We're very excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much, Denise, and uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk about all this today. It's really great to be here. Well, I have to say I'm very excited to hear what you have to say from so many different perspectives. One is that I have a brother with Down syndrome who is now in his 40s, actually approaching his 50s which is hard to believe. And so I know I've, I've seen my mother go through a parenting a, an adult uh, person with special needs. But then also there are other people like me who are in a situation where we are parenting our siblings with special needs as we head into our later years. And so that's also interesting for me. And then I, this in term, you know, what I do in, in, for my job and for my work is help lots of parents with this. And this is the number one thing parents worry about is what is going to happen to my child when I'm not around anymore, or even just will my child ever be able to live independently so that I can have the retirement and the later years that I want to have. So there are so many fascinating things we can talk about today, and I can't wait to talk about all of them. But let's start with something that's sort of basic Let's talk about what you do and how a coach really differs from a therapist. And in case listeners want to reach out to you after the episode, I want you to share a bit of how they can get in touch with you as well. Sure. And thank you, Ellen. I, um, I too, am really interested in talking today and hearing your perspective. What is your brother's name? His, his name is Robert. And Denise okay. knows him very well. He loves Denise. Everybody loves Denise. But he really, <laughs> really loves Denise, too. He, he lives independently, but did not begin living independently until he was in his mid-40s when my mother um, and my stepfather moved into a retirement community and he could not live with them because he wasn't over the age of 50. And so, but he does live independently. He works and with a little bit of support from family and community uh, help, he's able to do that. It's wonderful. My mom is still around to take care of him. So there's, there's a lot to be concerned about as far as the future. Well, uh, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I, I love the the chance to be able to talk about this. I'm really passionate about it. And, um, it's why I went into coaching. Um, but, but you had asked me, I think what, what's the difference maybe between coaching and 
and therapy um, or, or how people should think about that. Exactly. Um, I, I try to explain it. I, I kind of describe it a little bit like hiking. Do either of you hike? Walk? I do. You do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Oh, so, all the time, every day. <laughs> okay. So if you think about hiking, uh, a coach would walk with you on your hike with you. And when you get tired, they would, you know, encourage you and help you figure out when you need to stop and when you need to get more rest and all of that kind of thing. In, in my case, I would even try to help you figure out why hiking matters to you in the first place and why do you want to do it? And how do you get more hiking into your life? And because of my own life experiences, I would ha- hopefully help you learn a little bit about what I've learned and you would become a more satisfied hiker. And a therapist would probably help you figure out why you didn't like hiking in the first place. Was it something maybe that happened to you in your childhood? Um, are you afraid of heights, right? It's a, it's a more rear view, let's understand the past. And coaching is a more forward thinking, let's take a look at what you value and optimize it for your future. Coaching can be very therapeutic, but it is not therapy. And sometimes people work with with a therapist and a coach on different things. What what I find um, as the, the parent of somebody with disabilities is that we are so fixated on our kids and it's very helpful sometimes to take a step back and look at ourselves and our own lives. And a, a coach can really help you do that. It's almost like your support. The coach helps you get up the mountain where the therapist is sort of talking to you about, are you going to get up? Are you going to move? But you have to get up the mountain. So the coach gets you up there. The therapist, you might decide not to take the climb. <laughs> well, and the other thing I think is that a co- the coaching mindset is very much, you are a resourceful person. You are a creative person. You have answers. You um, just need the time and maybe somebody to help you look at things from a different perspective and hold you accountable, but, but you are, you're deciding where to hike and when to go. Right. Right. All right. Well, let's get into some meat here. Now I read on your website that when you meet a client, you begin by examining their priorities and these priorities change in different stages of life, which we all understand. What do you think are the most common priorities for parents of adult children with learning disabilities? So, so Ellen touched on this a little bit when she was talking about Robert. I think that, quite honestly, they're very similar to what you would say are the priorities for parents of children, adult children who don't have disabilities. They're just a little more complex. I, based on my experience, see housing, health, and general happiness. You know, it. Just the other day, my husband and I were talking about. You know, our son is 25. He has he has severe disabilities. How can we help him stay healthy? How can we help him manage his medical needs? How can we stay healthy as we age so that we can continue to, to help care for him as long as possible? So that health piece is huge. And happiness is, you know, very broadly defined the same way that you would with, with adult kids who, who don't have disabilities you know, career and relationships and, and passions, and then housing, which, you know, we could, we could talk about for an entire podcast, but, but housing is complicated as, as Ellen mentioned for individuals who have special needs. Um, But I think those three are where parents tend to put their energies and they need to put their energies. And, and I also want to just say, as we get started in this conversation, you know, people with special needs or people with disabilities, it's such a big, big continuum. And, you know, I can talk about my experience with my son or my daughter who has, um, has ADHD. We, we experience one thing and somebody else experiences it completely differently. And so my hope is that, you know, some of what people hear today can be applicable to their individual situations. Yeah. Chris, you mentioned something so interesting when Families come in to see me for an evaluation. I always give them a form that they have to complete to give me all the information, you know, their history and why they're here. And one of the questions I ask is, what do you hope for your child? And nearly every time parents say, I want my child to be happy, which is in reality, one of the most 
difficult things for any of us to do. Like happiness is not a destination, but it is something that we all want for our kids is happiness. And it, it it's difficult in even the best of circumstances. But you're right. There, there's a broad range of parents that we're talking about. Some are parents who who struggle, you know, who have kids who struggle with chronic depression, for example, or with an inability to care for themselves in other ways because of physical impairments or, you know, cognitive issues. So this is a why, this is a huge topic, as you, as you said. I think it's also, it's also so unique to the individuals, right? So we often find it really easy to say what we don't want. I don't want him to be lonely. I don't want her to be unemployed, right? It's it's harder to then turn that around and say, okay, well, what are we striving for? What's the goal? Let's not focus on on the negative. Let's focus on where the positive is and how can we how can we try to get there and help them get there? So how do they start planning that? Because part of it is dependent on what is there. What services are there and i know it ranges according to geographical areas and but but how do they even start planning for that so the first thing i have found is that you can't plan if you don't name it and acknowledge it right so you you for some of us we brought the baby home from the hospital and we knew right away that there were going to be special challenges for other parents. We don't find that out. And it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. And so I think early on, parents are really fixated on understanding their kids and, um, you know, setting high expectations. And if there are challenges, you know, they're, they're getting tutors or they're getting therapists or they're finding special programs. And, you know, at some point and, and every, child is different. At some point, parents, I think, start to recognize this is who my child is, warts and all, right? <laughs> just like uh, just like with our, our, our typical kids. And that's when we have to start to accept that and begin to plan. I, I, I think about my son, um, he was in, about 13 and um, it, it just was increasingly clear. This is who he's going to be. It doesn't matter that we've had years and years of therapy. He is not going to walk unassisted. He's going to rely on using a wheelchair. And once we accepted that, then that moved us toward other questions and trying to find answers to other kinds of things. And, you know, you can, you can start to plan, I think, as, as soon as you are starting to acknowledge and accept who your child is. So I just want to say something here as someone who fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, has not been exposed to this in my life. As I listen to you talk, I think with typical adult children, you lose control and you don't have any control over their lives and they are who they are. And we're all trying to be able to give advice and be able to um, help them on their journey, whereas they're separating from us and they're wanting to march off to their own drummer and we're all learning to let them go. When you have a child with special needs, the demands on you are so much more constant and real and they're depending on you even through their adult life. And I wonder a couple things. One, how you personally manage that. Is there some reward to that? When can you get your break? And I'm going to add one more thing onto this because you talked about tutoring and therapists and all that sort of thing. I want to make sure we address all different socioeconomic brackets here and ethnic families. I know that coming from a Greek American family, they hold on to their kids longer. Some are able to let them go and live independently. I listened to Ellen about Robert. You know, I think your mother would have kept Robert with her ongoing. He, he, he was her best friend in many ways, but he couldn't live with her because of, of the place she was living. So that was a whole bunch of different things together. So go ahead, Chris. <laughs> you just made that really hard for me. I know, I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> because I'm so passionate about all of those things. Um, well, the first thing I want to say is that I do believe there are huge rewards. Um, I do believe that I am a much better person, and I'm going to try not to cry when I say this, um, for um, the experiences that I have had with my son and with all of the people that I have met because of my son. Having said that, 
It is hard. It is complex. And you asked, how do you get a break? You don't get a break unless you recognize that you deserve a break and that you need a break and that you cannot care for other people unless you care for yourself. Um, I'm, Ellen, I'm interested in your perspective as a, a sibling who, who watched your own parents, and, and I'm not meaning to digress here, but it's, it's, it's so challenging um, when so much of our identity, and I, I speak for myself and so many people that I know, my dearest of friends and thought leaders and people I have met on this journey, so much of our identity is wrapped up in being the parent of this person. And so what do I need to do to help this person? My oldest son said to me one time, my, my son with disabilities is named Andrew. And my oldest son said to me, mom, Andrew did not ask you to give up your life for him. In fact, you should have a conversation with him. He wouldn't want it. From my perspective, I wasn't, I was just doing what was necessary. I also don't want to lose the, the question you asked about, about economics. I believe that there are a lot of resources out there and lots of organizations trying to help families like mine. It's sometimes really hard to find them. And sometimes parents are so exhausted, they don't even have the energy. I can tell you, for example, I do pro bono coaching with some families. I work through um, social service organizations and, and other kinds of entities to, to make my work available to folks. And there are lots of organizations like mine. So in my, my newsletter that I do on a weekly basis, it's a free newsletter. I often profile those kinds of, of organizations. Parents need to understand that, that there are resources and we're not perfect and we're not super women and super men. And we need this collective tribe to help us help our kids. It's really interesting that you pose this question. And, and I want to back up what you just said and reiterate the fact that there are a lot of great supports out there. And I am in the Boston area and there are many more. And I think this is a growing, there's a growing awareness of mm -hmm. young people who are moving into adulthood in, who have very good health. People with Down syndrome, they didn't live until they were almost 50. And so we've had to develop new programs for kids who have a different sorts of needs in terms of their life, being able to care for themselves independently. You asked what it was like for my family and my family, and this I think happens in a lot of families, just sort of lived with Robert there. And we said very much like your other son said, mom, he should be living on his own. He should be having his own life. And Denise mentioned he, my brother Robert is in some ways my mother's best friend. And that's true. He doesn't live far away from her. He sees her frequently, but not every day because he has a busy life. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want to see his mother every day anymore than anybody <laughs> wants to see their mother every day. And so it, it, it really, I, I think there is a, a certain amount of guilt and a certain amount of need. And like Denise said, we sometimes struggle with letting our kids go. And then there's also this tendency to like, oh, we could just keep them with us forever. And mm -hmm. they could be our best pal and, and live, you know, we can keep control. And I can say that my brother, Robert, is the happiest he's ever been. He has complete job satisfaction, whatever job he's ever had. And he loves living alone. I think that's also a big fear for parents is what will happen to my child if he's alone doesn't always take that much social support to make someone feel socially connected. Mm -hmm. Let go of some of that guilt that you you need to be the one who always cares for your adult child. It's not the case. Yeah. And I, the other thing I think is to, to think kind of outside the box when you think about what does living independently actually mean. We'd like to take a quick break from our conversation with Chris and recommend another podcast we think you'll enjoy. It's called The Lucky Few and is hosted by three amazing moms, all with children with Down syndrome. Each episode goes deep into raising children with special needs and celebrates the worth of people with Down syndrome. I hope you'll listen and subscribe to it. I know you'll enjoy it and learn a lot. 
I particularly love their Mother's Day episode. It was a great one. They interviewed their own moms. I think you'll like it. We've added the link to the Lucky Few podcast on our social media and in our episode notes. It's an inspiring podcast with three amazing moms. Give it a try. Now back to our conversation with Chris. You know, from from our perspective, living independently means not relying on your parents for 100% of everything you need in life. And somebody told me a long time ago, a very wise woman, you know, parents have an expiration date and we don't know when that is. And so our job, again, for kids with disabilities and adult kids without disabilities, help them to learn to take on the responsibilities of adulthood. And you can start to do that at a very, very early age. It's not easy. It's, it's you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you had to teach your kid to make a bed, it was just easier to do the, make the bed yourself um, than to look at the mess that <laughs> they were making. But it's, it's no different. And it's even more important to provide individuals with disabilities the chance to experience a job well done and to know that they can can do things. I remember my son, my son, uh, Andrew, is has very extreme physical disabilities. And there was a summer when we talked about chores and and one of his chores around the house was to literally turn the lights on and off. But it was an important thing for him to be able to do. And they build off those things. Again, just like adult children without disabilities, they build off those successes and then they they derive more self-esteem and the ability to be brave and to take risks and to learn and continue learning. I want to get to a little more specifics here. And we talked about, you know, the importance of finding housing if you want, and there's all these organizations. What's a parent's first call? You know, you mentioned they may be exhausted. They don't even have the time. What's your first step? Where can I go? You can tell me till you're blue in the face that there's a hundred million places in my community, but where do I start? So there are a couple of places to start. A school system, if this, if the uh, individual is under the age of 21, is a really good place to start. They know the child, they know the community, and they know the resources. Uh, again, what I might need for my son or daughter is very different from what you might need. But a school system actually has the, you know, the individual information and can point you in that direction. It, the other place often that I think people overlook are local departments of social services, where social workers exist and their whole job is to connect families with government benefits and entitlement programs and different accommodations that are available to you based on where you live. And so I always encourage people to also go to their local municipality and to make an appointment with a social worker and to to speak to that group. The the third thing and this is somewhat related to schools, but but a lot of school districts no longer just have a, a you know a parent teacher organization, but they have a a special needs parent group. And the, the sense of community that exists and the ability to learn from others who've gone before you is huge. So not only do you get, you know, the potential for a mentor, but you also, you know, you may just, in fact, make friends with somebody who's going to end up cooking for your family when somebody's in the hospital or making you laugh on that day that you really, really need it. Those would be when those are the three places that I think people need to begin. I would add one more to that too, and that is your primary care physician. They are often equipped to help you find someone, and regardless of where you are, you should, your child definitely should have a primary care physician. And if you're lucky, you might even have someone who specializes in kids with developmental disabilities or physical disabilities, or and, and that, that is a possibility in lots of metropolitan areas. But even if, if not, pediatricians and primary care physicians are really equipped to help you get in touch with social workers and departments of social services too. So that's, that's great. I'm going to jump to a little more harder topic. I spoke to a lot of friends of mine that have siblings with special needs. And one of them said, love, lust, sexuality is just concerns on every corner. And I read one of your newsletters where you address this, and I'm going to link all of Chris's newsletters and her site and some of these resources in my episode notes. In your newsletter, you say sexuality is an important part of being human. And it's often scary to think of even your typical children as they embark on their sexuality. How do you deal with 
a child with special needs, particularly those with Down syndrome or like your son with, you know, severe cerebral palsy, those that are, I don't know how to say this properly, but less able to uh, support a child if they happen to have one? Yeah, it's um, it's a huge topic. Um, so it's a great question. Um, and I think that what you heard initially, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that for many, many years, decades, society thought people with disabilities were, you know, either hypersexualized or asexual. I think a, a more contemporary way of looking at it is that they they need to understand sexuality as much if not more so than others they are you know at greatly increased risk for sexual abuse they have um, many people with disabilities have desires and dreams that you know involve relationships sexuality doesn't necessarily mean having sex um, but this is so hard for parents you know especially if if you're still you know, like, like we have been, you know, you're still providing so much care. Um, it's easy to continue to think of your child as a child. You know, my son turned 25 recently. I said, he's not a boy anymore. He's a man. And we have to look at him as a man. One of the ways that you do that is to become more comfortable yourself and more transparent in terms of learning and 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 talking about sexuality and finding ways to teach and reteach the importance of uh, safe touch and using your voice and developing friendships before expecting more from a relationship, it's it's complicated. But there are organizations. I came across a, a group recently, which you referenced um, uh, in my newsletter, uh, Elevatus Training. They're phenomenal. They do training for school systems. Uh, they do parent training. They do virtual training. All of it kind of designed to help parents become more comfortable with this aspect of their adult child. Very helpful. And you're right. This is just a tough topic for every single parent, regardless of what our, our you know, the age of our child even. To even take a step back from that, then let's talk about just companionship because that's sort of the basis when we're talking about sexuality and, and romantic love. How do you plan for companionship, especially without relying on parents or siblings or extended family? So again, I think this gets back to teaching, right? And teaching, um, it, it, again, there's, there's a broad range of disabilities and uh, it really depends so much on the kind of disability that that somebody has. But uh, teaching individuals how to make friends, how to identify what they're what they're passionate about and interested in, and then how do they identify other people who have similar interests? And through that, friendship forms, right? In the same way that your your kid goes off to college and you say, "Oh, get involved in the stuff that you love, and you're going to meet people who love it, and you're going to get to know them." It's it's very similar for people with disabilities. What are, what is your son or daughter really interested in? What are they passionate about? What are they capable of doing? And how might you direct them and empower them so that they can meet other people through this? You know, whether it's a fixation with trains and and transportation, or you know, a sports uh, team, or art, or music. I have. As I said, I have somebody in my family who is severely disabled and yet for many, many years has been in in a choir, um, whether it's at the school level or now in a community choir. And the the circle of friendships that develop and the companionship that's derived from that is phenomenal. But so much of this requires parents to to let go in some way. Denise was talking before, I think, about, you know, control and and the the need to control and sometimes it's a practical need when you're the parent of somebody with special needs sometimes you're just afraid and so that's another reason why i think it's so important for parents to have other people to talk through some of these things with because there is no book out there that that tells you exactly how to do it it's interesting because um, I have a friend that has a sister. Actually, she recently passed away at about, I think she was about 52 from COVID, which mm, was really sad. And she was the sixth, no, the fifth of six girls. And they were all very close to her. her. Name's Julie. And I love Julie. I'm sure my friend Jen would be listening to this. I always love Julie, just like I love Robert, Ellen. 
Um, but one thing Julie struggled with, and this has to do with sort of friendships and, rela- you know, relationships and that sort of thing. She watched her sister's lives develop. You know, she watched each of them go off to college. She watched them having relationships. And she would say, why can't I? Why can't I? And I always wonder how you deal with that as a parent. And, you know, I know that you have to set up things that they're interested in, but never able to be as independent as her siblings if they went off to here and there. Do you have any advice on sort of how to help the family through that? And also, you know, there's a big burden on the siblings. Yeah, I wish I wish I had this this easy answer. Um, you know, life is hard and being being courageous and brave is hard. And I think we have to teach our children, especially if they have disabilities, that they're not going to get everything they want in life. My son who's 25 will often talk about getting married or, you know, being a, a, a father, but we'll also talk about being an uncle. And we'll talk about how sometimes you don't find love if you're out there looking really hard for it. And so sometimes you have to let it sneak up on you. I, I don't think there are any easy answers. I think um, we we owe it to ourselves and to our children and to their siblings to create as much support within like the family that we can, but that's really hard too. And, and as you mentioned, being, being the sibling of a, of a, an individual with special needs, I mean, Ellen can speak to this probably for hours. It carries with it a different kind of reality. And so I, you know, I, I love when I see my other children sharing their disappointments with their brother who's disabled because it lets him know that disappointment is real and we all experience it and we're here for each other and we have to, you know, kind of take it as it comes. Um, but Alan, I don't know, what do you, what do you think when you think about your experiences with, with Robert? Well, I think just like Denise was saying about uh, her friend, Jen's sister, it is hard for him. It continues to be hard for him because he has wanted some of the things that he hasn't been able to have. And it is the reality is that we don't all get everything that we want. None of us do. And to be able to share in some of those things are incredibly meaningful to him. And he also shares our disappointments. You know, when, when relationships don't go well in our lives, he's able to be part of that you know, two things come to mind as you were talking. One is that when my brother Robert was was young, I was probably in middle or beginning of high school. I saw some kids made make fun of him, the way he was talking and slurred speech. I got very angry and I went home and I said, Mom, you need to have you need to call these parents or go and talk to these boys. This is absolutely wrong. This is and my mother said, you know, he's going to struggle all of his life with people who are going to say things to him. I can't fight every battle. While I might have been a 13-year-old with a lot of chutzpah and you know, wanting to solve every problem in the world, my mother sort of had a realistic view of that, that you know, she, she can't always be there. And that is actually true for every parent with every kid. Mm-hmm. And so having a sense of reality and also a sense of peace with that and knowing, you know, no, having your child know that you are there regardless, I think can help this process a bit. I, I love that you said this sense of peace. I think there is, there is acceptance that comes along the way. And, you know, you talked about guilt initially, right? There's, there's a whole lot of that. Um, there's guilt for siblings. Um, there's guilt for parents, but there's also, I think this acceptance as, as you have with all adult children, I, at some point have very little influence and no control. I cannot continue to protect and curate this life. My son or daughter will have a life of his or her own. And I, I need to celebrate that with them. And I need to encourage them. And as my husband said the other day to our son, <laughs> our job as parents now is to, is to applaud you. <laughs> we're, we're working to be <laughs> your cheerleaders, right? We're not going to facilitate right, right. every single thing. But I also go back to this concept of transparency. And I think for, especially for siblings, they worry. 
they worry about some of the same things that we as parents worry about, and they worry about their responsibilities when we are not around. And so the more forthcoming we can be, the more transparent we can be about our plans, our needs, our fears, not to inundate them, but you know, at some point when everybody's an adult, to to just make sure everybody's on the same page. And that'll that alleviates things. That's a really good point because unless you have just you know, not just, but an only child, what you're talking about really is a system that you have mm-hmm. to get from point A to point B. It's not like, oh, I, you know, you're, you're depending on on other family members, most likely to to do some of this. And you're right. When you grow up with a sibling with a significant disability, your life is different. You're always thinking about what will happen. And I'm lucky that I'm in a big family and that burden has burden, but for lack of a better word, has fallen on different different shoulders, depending as we have lived our lives. It is very, um, I think what you said, transparency a lot of times the parents don't want to necessarily talk about it, but the siblings do or vice versa. But I think that transparency and openness has got to happen. I just wonder as this is, you know, again, I I don't feel as as close to this as both of you, but what dawned on me is that I lost a sister when I was 17 and she was 18. And I watched my parents go through this horrible loss of a child and the guilt I felt for being alive made me work harder to be the perfect kid. And I wonder if there's any of that in the situation when you're a sibling of a child with a learning disability. Does the sibling feel like, gosh, mom and dad are going through so much. I've got to be the best I can be. Uh, I would tell you definitely. Ellen, I'm not sure what you're, I, I can tell you as a parent in my family, definitely from a variety of perspectives. Um, and there is some research, there, there's quite a bit of research on this that shows that to some extent that is very much true, but it can also, it, I think things sort of live at the ends of the curves. You can find that in many families, other kids become more responsible. And in some families, kids have more difficulties because of the siblings issues it depends on the issue. You know, if we're talking about a chronic mental health issue, it's a little bit different than when we're talking about something that is as disruptive to a family's mental health, for example. But it definitely can cause people to become more responsible and more caring in general. The big watch out is this issue of parentification, which, you know, there's a lot of research on, which is when children are put in the position of providing support and care well before they're you know ready from a developmental standpoint and that could be care of a of a sibling with disabilities it could be care of a parent who maybe has addiction or mental health issues or some sort of chronic disease so parents i think need to try to be aware of how much responsibility are they putting on a child and how is that child ready i mean i know in my family it was well you know, when can I help my feed my brother? Right. And so in other families, it's, it's, can I drive him, you know, um, in a, in a van that's equipped for his wheelchair. At some point you get to the the discussion of who's going to be a secondary guardian uh, and naming siblings. So, so these are the kinds of things that parents I think are challenged by, but again, it's this notion of naming it and planning and thinking about it and not just um, putting it off for tomorrow. You know, that leads us to something we wanted to ask about. Another one of my friends I talked to said, there's so much involved with it in advanced planning. You mentioned someone being a guardianship, that sort of thing. And the stages of preparation, I'm sure, change over time. What are some of the things you advise your clients to really start thinking about early and setting into place? And what kind of person do they go to to get this? And where do they start? That sort of thing. So I am a, um, it's a great question, Denise. I am, um, I'm a team oriented person. And um, I once had somebody tell me, and I, I share this often, okay, so fine, we've established that you're Wonder Woman. Now that we've established that, put that on the shelf and let's figure out who we can get to assist you. Very early on, parents who have 
uh, children with disabilities do need to identify legal assistance. They do need to understand what's coming down the pike in terms of uh, you know, guardianship at, at 18 and, and all of the other things that come with that. Can my son or daughter make medical decisions? Can my son or daughter um, make financial decisions? How do we want to structure that? And an, an attorney with, with expertise in that area is going to be is going to be really good. There are ways to structure finances um, so that a child can be entitled to, to support from the state and the federal government. And, and so understanding all of that through an attorney or through um, somebody with some financial expertise. Um, and again, I, I had talked about mentors. You know, this is where a lot of parents and online groups can be supportive and helpful because they can provide references and, and help point people in the right direction. I, I think it's very important, you know, at the same time to be looking at, you know, spiritual connections and what kind of faith-based organizations may be a part of your life and what kind of support can they provide. And, and the same with educational questions, you know, the journey from pre-K all the way through the age of 21, if you have a disability, it's a long journey. And so finding teachers and, um, and educators and advocates who can help in that regard. And again, I go back to, you know, everything I've just named, it all costs money, right? And if you have, if you have the money, it's great and you can have access to things. But I also, I've worked hard in my life and know many people who have as well um, to create opportunities for people who aren't as privileged financially and and still need and deserve the access to this this type of information. Can I just jump in here just with a, a question that I don't know if you can answer, but what's the role of Social Security in this? And when do you apply for that sort of support? And does that play into this at all? All of these things tend to happen around somebody's 18th birthday. In most uh, locations, you work with the um, the probate court in the municipality or the city or town where you live. And Social Security becomes one more piece of the pie. Social Security is is wonderful, in my opinion, because it helps to set the individual up towards independence. Um, it provides some support, never usually enough, but it's a starting point. It's also money that the person has that's in their name. And so in like our son's case, he started to learn about banking and budgeting, um, but it became very real when he turned 18 and he had those supports. I, I often say to people, you know, if you, if you have a typical child and you think about where they are when they're 18, they are you know, they've had, you know, paper routes, babysitting, maybe they volunteer places. It's so much harder for somebody with a disability. And so they often get to the age of 18 and they don't have any of those experiences. And in fact, they have to pay organizations to teach them job skills. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now you're going to, now you're, you're, you're hearing, you know, Chris, the advocate and not just Chris, the coach, but I think it's important if, if you have a child who may be eligible for SSI or SSDI, which is social security disability insurance uh, income um, to explore those things. And again, you may start with your school, you may start with your, uh, you know, attorney, you may start with your department of social services, but that information is all readily available. Um, one thing you keep mentioning is advocacy, finding advocates. I'm an exhausted parent of a child with a disability. Where do I find the time to find these advocates? And also, I start feeling, does anyone really want to help me? You know, how can I, what's the approach? I think there are two answers. I think, does anybody really want to help me? The answer to that is yes. And that's why it's so important, as I said before, to, to find your people, right? To find fellow parents to support you on the journey. But, but in terms of advocacy, I think this is something that happens over the, the, the lifespan. You find your own voice. And depending upon the disabilities that your son or your daughter experiences, you help them find their voice too, such that, you know, for example, if your, your son has autism, you work with an organization like Autism Speaks or Next for Autism, and you take advantage of some of the trainings that they have or a coffee that they host virtually, and you learn how to articulate your experience 
and help other people understand what that experience means and why it, it is important and something to be considered when we're thinking about new laws or new budgets or new other things. You hit the nail on the head, Denise. It, you know, people are exhausted. And so mm-hmm. I think that my other message always is if you aren't exhausted at a particular time or on a particular day, then it's incumbent upon us when we're not exhausted to step up and to speak out. In terms of being exhausted, the one thing that, you know, I raised two children, typical children, and it was exhausting raising two children. And I know there's people that have four and five and many more, but how do parents take care of themselves? What advice do you have to parents that maybe don't live near their families? You know, they don't have siblings around, their grandma's not around. How do they find a break for themselves? Oh, I wish I had the answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe if somebody has the answer, they can call me. Um, I, I, I would say a couple of things. We often want to shield the world from the challenges. We, we, you know, it's not my story. It's my son's story. I don't want to embarrass my son. I don't want to embarrass my other kids by telling people about the challenges that we're facing in our home. Um, You know, it's not unlike any family where you've got some particular thing that you're struggling with and you just don't want to broadcast it to the world. And what I what I would say and what somebody said to me is you can't pretend like it's all perfect and then be angry that you know the world doesn't understand. We have to we have to be brave and we have to be a little bit vulnerable and we have to share, you know, this is what I'm struggling with, this is what I'm challenged by. And then I think we will be amazed and I have been amazed at the kindness that gets shown, right? I wanna help. What can I do? I just want to take a walk with my partner, my spouse. Okay, so my neighbor is going to come over and sit in my living room for an hour, right? After my son or daughter goes to bed. But nobody knows to offer that if we don't tell them first that we really need it. And I think sometimes we are we try so hard to be strong. And sometimes, you know, we all know what we need to do. We know, right? You got to drink a lot of water. We got to meditate. We got to <laughs> got to get good sleep. But, but to your point, this is, this is hard for typical parents. It's, um, it's extra hard when you've got somebody with special challenges. So I think letting people in a little bit is important. And again, this is one of the reasons why I love coaching because we don't even know what we're missing until we stop and take, you know, an inventory of ourselves. You know, it doesn't mean you have to take your eyes off of the person you love and the child that you're raising and the adult that he or she is becoming, but you have to recognize that you matter too and ask yourself some of those important questions. And that enables you to find a little bit more joy and feel a little bit more healthy and sane. That is such an important question though. And it it applies to every single one of the topics that Denise has already had this season. And that is, what is it that you want? What is it that you desire? It's not really about the child. It's really, everything goes so much better when we are in tune to what it is that we need, because then we can ask the question or we can ask the neighbor for the help. And people are more than happy to respond, but it can't respond unless we're clear about what it is that we want. And that's that's a very difficult thing to do when we've spent our lives sort of putting our kids first. Yeah, it's um, it's very much about ourselves. Exactly. And I think we, I, I don't know if it's a generational thing or, or what. What's that expression? Self-care isn't selfish, right? It, it, you, you kind of have to be hit over the head with that, I think. Um, uh, it's... It, I, I often talk when I talk to parents, I talk about like a, a, a treatment plan, right? And it, it's not really, it's not a treatment. It's, it's treating yourself and, 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 and treating your child in a certain way. And what we talk about is that, you know, it's important to treat your child like they're capable and, and try really hard to not just see the disabilities, but find where are the capabilities and how can I help to nurture some of those. And it's, it's also to treat each day as it comes and to not expect yourself to be doing more than you really can. And, you know, the third thing is to <laughs> just to treat yourself like you matter. 
Because you do. So, so important. We're kind of a generation of people that want to do it all. And we've been taught to be strong, go forward, don't ask for support. And this is a time when you really need to. So as we wrap this up, and you've been so wonderful, Chris, and I think we could talk for hours, as you said, and we might come back for that. I'd love that. (laughs) I always like to end the episode by asking my guest for three top pieces of takeaway advice. So you've said so much. Um, Can you give us three points, even if you've said it already, that you really hope that someone listening will take away? So thank you for that opportunity. I think I would keep it pretty simple. I would start by encouraging people to be brave and to be vulnerable and to share with those around them about what they need and what their child needs so that they can get the support that is essential to us all on this journey. And I would also encourage people to look outside of their immediate support system and to try to learn from the people who go before them. Because even though we experience it differently, when we learn something, most of us really want to share that with other people in a way that enables them to learn and grow too. And my last piece, which is what we've talked about a lot today, which is to to take care of yourself and to give yourself permission to not be perfect and to be sad or be angry, but then to be you know excited and to celebrate and to know that you matter. And you matter not just because you are the parent of an individual with disabilities, but because you are you. That's really beautiful. Ellen, do you have anything to add at the end? Here? No, I love that. That is just so, those are great things to remember and easier said than done. But I think that it's something we should all be striving for. Chris, thanks for joining us today. We really, really appreciate it. And you two are both on the East Coast. You ought to arrange a time to get together. I think with both of your practices, there could be some some support going on there. Great to meet you. Great to share this hour with you and have a nice evening. Thank you both so much. This was really a joy and I'm very grateful for the time. Thanks so much, Chris. It was great to have you with us. I hope many of our listeners will share this podcast with others they think will benefit. As a reminder, today we were chatting with Chris Burbank, a professional coach for families with children with special needs. You can check out her website at Chris, that's Chris with a K, Burbank.com. There you will find lots more information about Chris, as well as links to her newsletter and other resources she has. We will provide all of this on our episode notes, so don't worry. And again to our listeners, thanks for joining. Each episode, we are working to get this better and better, but we can't do it without you. Send us your thoughts, ideas, suggestions, anything you want us to talk about, and we promise to reply. Coming up are shows on spirituality, LGBTQ, I am very excited about a nationally recognized relationship therapist who we are recording with very shortly. Remember, we drop two episodes a month, usually the second and fourth Fridays of the month. So look for the episode on spirituality to drop on June 25th. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And thanks again to Connie Fisher, our audio engineer extraordinaire. We can't do it without her. Thanks again. And remember... Sometimes you just have to bite your tongue.